get started. So, because this is our first episode, I'll let you know a little bit about us. We are a group of leftist people of color from all walks of life. Our mission statement as a podcast is to create a community of people of color and their allies in which we celebrate what makes us different alongside celebrating our common humanity. This is a space to uplift all voices and to push back on those entities that want to keep us in our place. Mainly, capitalism, militarism, and white supremacy. With that said, we're going to have a lot of fun. And we encourage all of you to get involved with us so that we can uplift more voices, tell more stories, and celebrate. Let's get started. First up, Byron Lopez is going to explain a little bit about anarcho-syndicalism. It's going to be a part of our larger theme of educating people on anarchism. Ooh, anarchism. You know, even for some lefties or people who are new to the left, that's kind of a, a scary thing. But let me tell you, it's actually a lot of fun. Anarchism. So anarcho-syndicalism is very much the idea that revolutionary uh, labor unions should be the main vehicle to institute revolutionary change, specifically through an anarchist uh, lens of theory that seeks to immediately abolish the state and capitalism and not to bring a new state simply managed by the unions. The state's a dangerous thing. It's a lot, you know, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's something anarchist syndicalists fundamentally believe. If you try to seize the state instead of abolish it, you will simply perpetuate everything. You know, maybe things will get a little bit, a little bit better, but the fundamental problem of the state and capitalism will never go away. So, so anarchist syndicalists instead offer to, uh, through the revolutionary unions abolish the state, bring all as much power as humanly possible to the ground level, to the local level. Well, one of the worker cooperatives are kind of one of the vehicles which anarcho-syndicalism kind of proves itself as viable and also to help set up an alternative infrastructure for when the revolution comes. Um, So worker cooperatives, for, you know, people who don't know, are... Basically, businesses that are run democratically. 
most union print shops are usually work cooperatives in that you know the union as in a group of people uh, have taken upon themselves to create this business to run it democratically through the union and the profits that are attained are redistributed uh, either to the workers themselves based on the number of um, um, based on the amount of work they put in funneled back into the business itself to further expand the business Cynicalism in general is based on based in the working class thems- itself and not some sort of you know management class or you know the or the bourgeoisie being nice and giving you a union. No, this is something you have to fight for. It's something you need support from the community for. Not everyone can necessarily be active in a union, but you still want you know public and community support. So mutual aid is very much where they get the support by going out to the community and providing uh, you know medical care by providing. Uh, you know, housing, you know, through squats and stuff like that. By going through and, you know, distributing food to the homeless, uh, by, you know, going out and talk to people and seeing what their needs are. It, 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 it brings the support to, uh, for, of the community to the union. And then when, you know, things like the strike uh, comes, this, the community is there to support the union in their fight, just like the union is there to support the people in their fights. Anarcho-cynicalism, actually contrary to cynicalism, like more moderate cynicalism, is very anti-hierarchical. They wish for the union, uh, the union itself, uh, to be as horizontal as possible, to put as much power as possible in the hands of the at-large members, and not in some sort of, uh, in, in, in the hands of the stewards or the executive members or what have you um and if there is going to be any additional layering uh above kind of the local union it it should be delegated uh and it should be a delegation of work not necessarily power and any and all decisions major decisions should be verified with the local themselves the wobblies were formed uh, as a not an anarcho-cynicalist necessarily, but more of a moderate cynicalist organization. But they did have a lot of anarchists uh, in the, uh, in the initial creation of the organization to kind of push it towards that direction. This is probably uh, this also helped lead to their kind of detachment from electoral politics or, or hell even politics in general. Um, they don't make alliances with any, you know, political organization, whether that be a party or something more, something like a non-party socialist organization, like a DSA, uh, for example. Um, but they do have this very radical history. In the United States pushing uh, for the idea of the one big union, one single industrial union that comprises all the workers. So when you know times are hard, are the hardest, for example, the Great Depression. Um, if they had enough power, they could issue a general strike and literally bring down the government. Hi, my name is Brandon Payton Carrillo of the Movement of Color podcast. And here's a sneak preview of an interview conducted by Darletta Scruggs with trans activist Alyssa Pariah. Enjoy. 
we hear a lot about the question of allyship. What to you makes a good ally? You know, so if someone's being a good ally to the most marginalized people, what does that that activity look like? What is good allyship in today's social activist period? I, I'm curious because because I hear this a lot. So I just You're starting what, makes, what makes a good ally? Um, an ally is somebody who gets pleasure out of being in service of others who are oppressed where they are privileged. And that's not a value judgment, um, but it looks like charity to me. Mm -hmm. um, and very importantly, it does not look like solidarity. Mm -hmm. So I know that that is exactly what people who aspire to allyship um, often really do aspire to in earnest, like they want, they want to be in solidarity. Um, so they will ask an oppressed person, what is it that you would like me to do? Mm -hmm. Because I want to be in allyship. Uh, now you got a problem because mm -hmm. now, well, what is that person going to say? Because if you ask me, if you ask James, hi, hi James. <laughs> oh, okay. If you ask, my mother, who's going to be coming here in a few minutes, and hopefully she's okay with me doing this. Um, if you ask homeboy downstairs that we just saw on the way up here, who you probably should go talk to. No, thank you. Okay, never mind. But you know, anybody, you know anybody right? It depends on who you ask. Um, because if you ask me, I'm going to be like, oh, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, because we need people to make banners for our next protest. We need people who can do chants and have a bullhorn. We need people to, to uh, do the phone tree, to call everybody who we know in order to show up. We need people to provide childcare for parents who want to mm -hmm. come. Uh, we, I'll give you, I will put you to work. Mm -hmm. So be careful when you tell me I want to be your ally because you might really end up getting kind of fucked up and like overwhelmed. But if you meet somebody who tells you what I would like for you to do is to come to my eight-week intensive where I can teach white people how to unlearn their racism and it only costs $1,500. Mm. 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 <laughs> oh, well, that's a little different, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So in that case, you need about $1,500 to be an ally. Ain't that some shit? Um, so it's a different... Mm -hmm. that you know you'll, you'll get different results if that's your if that's your um your your want is just to, to be in service uh of a fight that is not yours you will defer to uh another um based on uh their oppressed status and i would say that uh that's tricky it's a gamble mm -hmm. right it 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 um rests on the assumption that that person has the right ideas and they know how to lead a successful struggle and I would say most of us just don't. Mm -hmm. What would you do if somebody told you that they want to be an ally to you? Single, single black mother, working class, south side of Chicago. Yes, I yes, yes. You want to make a list, right? Like, what, what, what can I do for you? I want to be a good ally. The, the best thing an ally can do for me is to inform themselves. You know, inform yourself. 
as much information as you can get on history, current events, be plugged in, question a lot of things, but actually, you know, go through this process on your own because for all of us, it was a process. I had trash ass views four and five years ago. I was a terrible person, okay? I'm my best whole self today. I was not my best whole self five years ago. <laughs> Okay, she I didn't say whole self. self. She said whole self. Whole self, not whole, <laughs> whole self, okay? Mm-hmm. But it, it's a process, and there is no one size fits all. And in many ways, we have people like yourself, like myself, who are able to really navigate those conversations and really teach people, but not everyone does. And what I don't think allyship is is sitting in a corner in isolation and grappling with ideas on your own and unpacking by yourself and, you know, tackling all your inner privileges and basking in why other people are oppressed and you got it a little better. I don't think that's Mm -hmm. good allyship. I don't think doing anything in isolation or as an individual is, is allyship or is effective in any way because this system works best by dividing us up in all type of individual uh, categories. So I think for me, the best way a person can be an ally is open in public discourse, having a conversation, Mm -hmm. being open to different ideas, but you got to put your ideas out there. I don't want people walking around simmering with hatred ideas. I like to know who my enemy is. I like to know, oh, I can't fuck with you. Okay, you, I can probably talk to. Okay, you, I see why you think that. Oh, you a fucking maniac, and I'm sending you to a guillotine. Like, Mm -hmm. I I like to know this. (laughs) But the only way you can know this Mm -hmm. is if people are able to have conversations and go through those those tough, you know, uh, conversations, those tough topics, and actually be able to express their ideas. Now, I understand this is easier yes. said than done. And the hood ghetto ratchet side mm-hmm. of me thinks that sometimes if you don't act or respond in an appropriate way, that's fine. We're all human and we can evolve and mm-hmm. be better. But I do think that it has to be a public discourse. We have to have these conversations. And like you said, follow the money. Follow who actually out here not struggling. Because mm-hmm. everybody ain't struggling out yeah. here. There are some people who are doing mm-hmm. quite well. We should ask, how is it that they're Mm -hmm. doing quite well when so many millions of people are fucking miserable? These are the questions that I want to know. You know, these are the pressing issues of me. Why am I struggling? And this person Mm -hmm. isn't, you know, and really has the Mm -hmm. power. Yeah. Okay, y'all. So here on the Movement of Color podcast, we like to uplift the stories of everyday working people. So I'm going to let Regina Lari Campuzano tell her story in her own words with a fat beat to it. My name is Regina Lari Campuzano. I am an almost 27-year-old Mexican non-binary human working as a tattoo artist in Oakland, California. I started tattooing about 11 years ago. Honestly, it was just all of those TV shows that came out. I had always been into body modification as a child slash teen. Um, I managed to get permission from my parents to get my first piercing at 12. I was always really interested in tattoos and um, drawing all the time. And when 
all of those big TV shows like Miami Inc. started coming out, I was like so impressed at how these things happened and just decided that I was going to try to do it myself and found myself an apprenticeship. When I became 15, I apprenticed for about two and a half years and then I decided to quit the industry because it is extremely male-dominated. Um, it is an industry that often doesn't have any security for the people that work in it, and especially not the apprentices. Um, and I just started facing a lot of sexual harassment from the people teaching me how to tattoo, and I just decided that that was not what I was going to do. And I quit doing it completely for about seven years. And two years ago... Back here in Oakland, I found myself in a really, really hard economic situation where I was having to pay Bay Area rent and found that my education and my skills were not allowing me um, to, to survive pretty much. And I kind of turned back to tattooing as something that was profitable and that I could also do as an immigrant because I was having such a hard time finding stable jobs, um, especially in between um, processing my work permits and just all the bureaucracy was astounding and I just like needed something to do and this skill came back to me. Um, and yeah, now it's my full-time job. I think one of the first things that I have to say is I'm Mexican, I'm Latina, but I am really, really, really light-skinned. Um, and so I often get the benefit of passing um, as white um, unless there are spaces where a green card is needed or a passport is needed or there's talk about voting or just all of this bureaucracy become, it becomes apparent that I actually don't um, have the same experience as most of the people around me. The POC tattoo world is very small in terms of or it doesn't get as much recognition as um, white artists get often. Um, and so I feel like that's, there's a lot of folks uh, um, who are trying to make a push to get more visibility just because there is a lot of, um, a lot of artists that have historically stolen work from other cultures who do tattoo as part of their traditional um, identity and culture. Um, and then there's a lot of artists who are white and just profit off of it. Um, I So that's kind of like one of my experiences, right? Like I apprenticed in a completely different country. I apprenticed some people who literally have different skin, like skin will be different um, from race to race. And there's a lot of people here who like 
because they weren't around people of color, didn't have to learn how to how to tattoo their skin and oftentimes will really hurt it. I don't know, it's like very um racism in the in the tattoo world is like very real. Um I get a lot of passing privilege on that end. Um but as someone who's non binary but till very recently identified as femme, um I oh my god, I've like it that's a whole other <laughs> a whole other um it's a whole other experience. I feel like tattooing is all about bodily autonomy and it's something that is often denied um, to most of us. Um, it is a, a space that is incredibly cisgendered, male-dominated, um, and where oftentimes you will find people that still have this idea that if you're getting um, clients because you're pretty or because they must want to like have sex with you or people who get away with being extremely famous and sexually harassing their clients or just completely disregarding their their bodily autonomy and what they want to do. As someone who um, is coming from an extremely male-dominated background and who learned in that environment, what I think my role in the industry is, is to completely take back that space. Tattooing is this act of radical bodily autonomy. You are completely changing your body to be who you are or who you want to be. Um, and what I've noticed in what I think seems to be a big trend in the tattoo world is that queer femme and POC tattoo artists are taking back that space and that respect for bodies and for people's bodily autonomy. And we're trying to make it a vulnerable and radical space for people to be who they are. I organized with East Bay DSA, um, and something that we always talk about is how capitalism is super good at alienating us from each other. But I would actually say that capitalism is also super good at alienating us from ourselves and alienating us from our own bodies and truly noticing what we need to be healthy instead of just what we need to like survive. Um, and I don't think capitalism wants like extremely confident people walking around you know I think I think this is like a really good space to create the people that we want to be tattooing allows us to do that um, and it allows us to imagine ourselves um, in a space that it's our own which is our bodies it's like the only space that we have that is always going to be there. My goals in the future, I definitely want to open my own studio at some point. Uh, I am not at the point where I can do that right now, but I think tattooing is a perfect industry to have cooperative spaces um, as long as everybody 
is tattooing, then we can all be co-owners. And I want, yeah, so I want to do that. I I am very excited to have cooperative models. I oftentimes don't. Um, I also work with a sliding scale rate, and I really want to start also having more scholarships for my clients because I do think that one thing that happens a lot in the tattoo world is that um, the, the richer you are, the better tattoo work that you get because clients, I mean, because tattoo artists who are start getting more sought after start raising their rates. Um, and then that means that oftentimes, um, mostly POCs, like immigrant folks, queer folks, end up not being able to afford the art that they would want in their own bodies. Um, so I want to be able to make sure that as I grow as a tattoo artist, I do not become inaccessible. Once every three months, we have a Flash fundraiser. And Flash is this kind of tattoo that is pre-drawn. So artists will draw sheets of designs that people can come and choose from and then all the proceeds go to a different organization. And this year we organized about 11 of them. Those kind of fundraisers have been really important for me to keep my work relevant to what I care about and to my politics. Um, I do think that I am lucky enough to be in one of the few creative industries where people are down to pay artists for their labor. Um, I think that that's something that most artists don't actually get, like, don't get properly compensated. And we are lucky enough to, to do, to get that, right? To get properly compensated for our labor. So I want to make sure that I'm always like giving back. Um, and I want to make sure that that becomes uh, a staple of, of all the work that I do. All right, gang. So we've come to the end of our time together. Thank you. Now, as a means to help us continue to bring you wonderful stories and some badass music with those stories. Become a monthly contributor. Our Patreon page is patreon.com backslash movement of color. So thank you. Donate. We'll have some nice goodies for you as well. And some secret sneak peeks as well. Now, if you have a story you want to tell us, something going on, or just some general love mail, send it to movementofcolorpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you, and see you next week. Adios.